podcast is a production of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. It is made possible by grant funding from the Academy of Teaching Scholars at the University of Oklahoma. The views expressed in this podcast are based on the participants' research, but at times may represent their expert opinion only. Thanks for joining us today. Our guest today is Dr. Marvin Williams. Dr. Williams is an associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology here at the University of Oklahoma, and he is the director of our prenatal diagnostic center here at OU as well. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Williams. Thanks for having me, doctor. Okay, on the podcast today, again, I'd like to talk about something our residents don't see that often, which is what we've been doing, but they can have these things can have a huge impact on pregnancy. And what I'd like to talk about is infections in pregnancy. You know, HSV, parvo, CMV, things like that. Dr. Williams, I know this is an area of particular interest to you, and you have a lot of knowledge here, so I'm hoping that you can provide us some good breadth of information today. I'll do my best. Thank you, Dr. Smith. Um, so, you know, like I said, we don't see this a lot. I find infections in pregnancy is one of those things where when you encounter someone who's exposed to an infection or asked about, you have to find that part of the brain where you've you've hidden that information. So um, give me an overview of what you'd like to talk about today or what do you think are the important infections that we should address as OBGYNs? So, yes, yeah, so I think I think first and foremost, uh, those infections that you just discussed or just touched on HS or herpes simplex virus, parvo B19 virus, and uh, CMV or cytomegalovirus are three infections that we can see during pregnancy, but oftentimes ask ourselves, what should I do? What I'd like to do or my intention over the next few moments is to just discuss some of the key concepts of these viruses, uh, how you diagnose these viruses, and when it's proper to refer a patient to our service. That would be great. Perfect. Okay, let's talk about HSV first. Well, first, I think it's important to note that general herpes is important because it's become the most prevalent sexually transmitted infection that we deal with. Uh, my research has uh, brought about uh, some of the more uh, some of the facts that I'd like to just list here. For example, it's estimated that over 50 million people are infected with HSV. Though the majority of women are unaware of their status, approximately 25% of women overall in the United States are seropositive for HSV too, with higher rates even reported in the high-risk population. So a really important uh, infection that we that we'll see now among those women who are negative for the disease the incidence of HSV 1 or 2 infection during pregnancy is about 2% what about those individuals who are discordant or who have a discordant couple that is uh, women who are HSV seronegative and have partners who are seropositive it's estimated that approximately 10% of couples exist and, and some of these women will unfortunately seroconvert during pregnancy. So a very, very important aspect in our counseling of, the, of these patients. Now, as most of these uh, cases of HSV are transmitted by persons unaware of their infection or who are asymptomatic, containing this worsening public health problem has become a major concern of ours, for us rather. Now, a brief overview of the pathogenesis and transmission is probably the best way to begin, Katie. There, as we all know, there are two serotypes of this DNA virus, HSV1 and HSV2. 
there's a large amount of DNA sequence concordance between the two viruses, and prior infection with one type attenuates a new infection with another type, and this will this will hold this will be important here in just a moment. However, both viruses can cause either genital or oral pharyngeal lesions, which are indistinguishable clinically. Transmission occurs secondary to intimate contact with an infected partner or vertically transmitted to the fetus. The incubation period is approximately three to six days. Now, Katie, one of the most difficult areas regarding HSV is keeping the various classifications in order. I'd like to just briefly discuss this. First episode or primary general herpes is a clinical presentation of a patient without antibodies to HSV-1 or HSV-2. Many women with new infections are often asymptomatic. However, this group is one of the highest likelihood of having clinical symptoms. Focal painful vesicles may be present or lesions may appear as painful braided areas, inguinal lymphadenopathy, favor, malaise, dysuria, and vulvopyritis are among the most common seen in this group. Although only approximately one-third of newly acquired infections will be, will be symptomatic. Viral shedding and symptomatology usually last for approximately three to six weeks. First episode non-primary genital herpes is a second condition that I'd like to just briefly talk about. Now these uh, individuals will oftentimes present clinically. Uh, these individuals have antibodies to another viral serotype. For example, this infection is diagnosed when HSV2 is isolated from the general tract in the presence of pre-existing HSV1 uh, serum antibodies. These infections have a shorter clinical course with less severe symptoms and fewer lesions. And finally, recurrent general herpes infections are much milder and shorter with lesions lasting three to 10 days. The shortened course of infection reflects the pre-existing presence of, of antibody to the viral serotype causing recurrent infections. During pregnancy, approximately five to 10% of women with, HS, with a history of HSV will have a symptomatic recurrence. The risk of transmission is slight. Now, with respect to just the clinical diagnosis of HSV, Katie, we know that the history and clinical examination are all are useful in the diagnosis of HSV, but as general HSV is often asymptomatic, all suspected HSV infections should be confirmed through laboratory testing. The gold standard, the diagnostic test to detect the presence of HSV infection has been the viral culture. Now this culture of the fluid from the vesicles demonstrates the highest yield. However, historically, many patients present for evaluation after the vesicles have evolved into ulcers. The limitations of cultures is that they cannot differentiate between HSV-1 or HSV-2. That's an important point. That said, I think PCR to detect HSV DNA seems to be the most useful test. They're quite reliable and can differentiate among HSV-1 and 2 serotype. Treatment consists of mainly supportive measures with acyclovir therapy given 400 milligrams orally TID and usual course is approximately five to 10 days. Suppressive therapy is also highly effective in mitigating recurrent outbreaks. Alternative therapies are acyclovir and vamcyclovir. Now with respect
respect to management of HSV in pregnancy, we know that primary genital HSV infection during pregnancy constitutes a higher risk of perinatal transmission than does recurrent infection. And these are really, these are good numbers to retain because in counseling your patients with respect to the risk of perinatal transmission as well as the mode of delivery. So for example, the risk of vertical transmission to the neonate when a primary outbreak occurs at the time of delivery is approximately 30 to 60 percent. Among women with recurrent lesions at the time of delivery, the rate of transmission is estimated to range between less than one to three percent. And for those women with a history of recurrent disease and no visible lesions at delivery, the transmission risk has been estimated to be quite low at two per 10,000. As I said previously, these are important numbers to remember on counseling your patients. So for so what does ACOG recommend for those individuals uh, with recurrent lesions or recurrent disease? So for patients with recurrent genital HSV, acyclovir or some sort of, uh, uh, or valcyclovir therapy in the latter part of pregnancy, that is 36 weeks until delivery has been shown to decrease HSV outbreaks at term and decrease in the need for cesarean delivery. For those individuals uh, who present to labor and delivery, a woman with a known history of HSV should be questioned regarding prodromal symptoms, lower itching or burning, and recent HSV lesion. A careful examination should be performed and suspicious lesions should be cultured. Women with any evidence of prodromal symptoms or active HSV should be offered a cesarean delivery. And I think it's important to note that approximately 10 to 15 percent of infants with HSV are born to women undergoing a cesarean delivery. So counseling should reflect a decreased risk of HSV transmission with cesarean delivery, but not a negative risk. A non-genital lesion should be covered and vaginal delivery allowed. If a woman presents a term with HSV, with an HSV lesion, and has ruptured membranes, regardless of duration of rupture, a a cesarean delivery should be performed, excuse me. If the infant is preterm, expected management should be offered as a risk of prematurity outweighs the unknown benefit of delivery. If at the time of labor the lesion has resolved, vaginal delivery can be allowed. Okay, that was wonderful. You know, I think a couple of the really important points are when you talked about um, that uh, uh, first episode non-primary, so those women who have HSV-1 antibodies, which we see a lot, and then this is their uh, new diagnosis of HSV-2, that they have fewer symptoms and decreased risk of transmission. The other thing, those numbers are really important because I think we tell people what to do but not necessarily what the risk is. And the third thing I think that's most important there is making sure that we document, and this is something that I've, I've learned out in practice, that you know a cesarean delivery doesn't eliminate the risk it reduces the risk so your patient has that realistic expectation that the pediatricians are going to come in evaluate the baby may need um, some sort of lab work done um, because there is still a risk to the baby so that's great okay next I think we're going to talk about parvovirus so let's move on right so parvovirus is a rare infection but a potentially extremely serious perinatal complication now the infection is caused by a DNA organism, the ParvoV19 virus. The virus is transmitted primarily by respiratory droplets and infected blood products. Now, immunity to parvovirus increases progressively throughout childhood and in young adult life, and parvovirus is predominantly seen in preschool and school 
teach children. My adulthood, only 40% of women, fortunately, uh, are tested and are susceptible. So said another way, 60% of women are immune to parvovirus by their early adulthood. The annual conversion rate seems, serial conversion rate seems to be approximately 1% to 2%. Now, we know that parvovirus infections occur sporadically or in outbreaks in school systems during the late winter months and early spring months. So I think that's important to note when you're counseling your patients as well. The incubation period is between 4 and 14 days and in some reported literature as high as 20, as high as 20 days. Patients with parathema infectiosum or EI are infectious before the onset of the rash and remain contagious approximately 48 hours after the rash develops. In contrast, women with a transient aplastic crisis are infectious before the onset of clinical symptoms and, and through the subsequent week. Fortunately, there's no reactivation phase for parvo like in some of the other uh, infections. Now, I think it's also important to note that in patients with comorbidities such as thalassemia or sickle cell disease, parvo V19 can cause severe transit aplastic crises in the immunocompromised population, and V19 infections can persist and manifest as chronic anemia. So that's important to note in those patients that we take care of. When maternal parvo infection occurs during pregnancy, the virus can cross the placenta and infect the red cell progenitors in the fetal bone marrow. The virus attaches to the antigen on the red cell and suppresses erythropoiesis, resulting in anemia and high output cardiac failure. And failure. That's how we can see the high drops. This is the etiology of the high drops. Now, the same antigen is also present in fetal, in fetal myocardial cells, and in some fetuses, the viral infection causes a cardiomyopathy that further contributes to heart failure. In the worst case scenario, B19 infection is associated with anemia, non immune high drops, and death. The risk for fetal high drops is directly related to the gestational age at which maternal infection occurs. Now, if the, infection, if the infection develops during the first 12 weeks of gestation, the risk of high drops varies from about 5 to 10%. Fortunately, as the pregnancy progresses, we can see a decrease in high drops, where, uh, where between the 13th week of gestation through the 20th week of gestation, we can see a decrease in approximately 5%, and beyond 20 weeks is quite rare, less than 1%. Now, the best way to, concern, to confirm the diagnosis of maternal parvovirus infection is through serologic testing. The presence of IgG and IgM parvovirus-specific antibodies. Now, this testing can be performed through ELISA or immuno, radioimmunoassays, uh, and they can determine a past or recent infection. Now, we have to go back to our immunologic days, mm -hmm. our immunology days, Katie, and recall that IgM antibodies develop within days of infection and can persist up to two to three months or as high as six months in rare cases. IgG forms several days later. The absence of IgM and IgG uh, indicates either no prior infection and a susceptible individual or an early infection before antibody formation has resulted. So serology should be repeated one to two weeks later. So that's an important point. IgG alone indicates prior infection and thus immunity, whereas IgM alone indicates a very recent infection and IgM and IgG both present indicates recent infection one to six months previously.
Fetal parvovirus infection should be considered if non-immune high drops is detected on ultrasound, DNA PCR for parvo B19 using amniotic fluid or fetal blood samples are now the diagnostic test of choice. And that's what your maternal, your maternal fetal medicine specialist can counsel the patient on and perform an amnio if necessary. Once the infection is confirmed, it's quite simple. The fetus should be evaluated for the presence of anemia and referral to a maternal fetal medicine physician is appropriate. The best test uh, for this is ultrasound assessment of the middle cerebral artery via Doppler velocity interrogation. Serial exams will be performed for at least eight weeks after documentation of maternal serial conversion because the incubation period for fetal infection may be longer than that of children and adults. The most obvious manifestation of fetal anemia is high drops. However, by the time uh, the uh, ultrasound uh, evidence of high drops is present, severe fetal anemia has occurred, meaning a fetal hematocrit of less than 20. Therefore, a more precise way to monitor for fetal anemia is MCA surveillance, and that's why we recommend that. If velocities indicate fetal anemia, a cordocentesis is performed to determine the fetal hematocrit. If anemia is confirmed, then an intrauterine transfusion can be performed. Excellent. You know, parvo is one of those things that I remember from residency. If we saw something abnormal, we drew the lab. But, you know, now I have patients calling and... <clears throat> You know, they come from all over the state, and they're calling and going, you know, little Johnny, his classmate, has, you know, Fitz disease, and has parvo, what do I do? And so it's something we'll encounter. I think one of the important things you talked about was the risk of transmission through um, uh, each uh, gestational age. Um, you know, you know it goes down, but knowing that it's 5 to 10 and then less 5 and then less than 1 is really important in counseling the patient. And then remembering to repeat those antibodies. Um, I think that's something that I learned early on when I started taking care of these multips who have young kids in school and you're testing for these things is, you know, you get that first test back, you need to make sure you get them back for another test and that nothing has changed unless they're already immune. So, um, okay, let's move on to CMV. Right, so uh, finally, I think uh, CMV is another really important infection that we need to uh, discuss because it's one of the most common, or should, I should say the most common congenital viral infection with a prevalence of approximately a half percent. Uh, of births. So we can see CMV in up to a half percent of births. And up to 4% of women have primary CMV infection during pregnancy. So something, that, although not common, but if you do enough deliveries, you will see. Primary maternal CMV uh, infection may present like a mononucleosis type of illness with fever and mild hepatitis. However, this is important. 90% of women are asymptomatic. With primary maternal infection, vertical transmission to the fetus occurs approximately a third of cases. Although the risk of vertical transmission increases with gestational age, the most severe congenital CMV cases usually occur with primary maternal infection during the first trimester. That seems to be a recurrent theme of all of these infections. Of infected fetuses, up to 20% are born with sequelae included. Growth restriction, microcephaly, ventriculomegaly, hepatosplenomegaly, hepatitis, chorioretinitis, and even thrombocytopenia. The mortality rate is approximately 5%, so quite, quite, quite devastating. 
those who survive have up to a 60% risk of developing neurodevelopmental abnormalities within the first three years of life, such as cognitive impairment and hearing and vision loss. Asymptomatic infected infants at birth also are at risk of developing neurodevelopmental abnormalities, so this can be quite devastating for the parent. In cases of secondary maternal infections from reactivation or reinfection with a new strain of CMV, the rate of fetal vertical transmission is up to 2%. Pre-existing maternal antibodies to CMV is the most important protective factor against transmission. With fetal infection in these cases, most newborns are asymptomatic at birth, but still are at risk of developing neurodevelopmental abnormalities. Testing pregnant women for possible CMV infection is indicated in women with mononucleosis-like illness, excuse me, or when there is a concern for fetal CMV based on sonographic findings. Routine screening for CMV in pregnant women is not recommended since at least 50% of women of reproductive age have evidence of prior CMV infection. Prim primarily, excuse me, primary maternal, primary maternal infection is diagnosed by documentation of seroconversion through the detection of CMV IgM antibodies in a woman who has previously who, who was previously seronegative. In the absence of seroconversion, the presence the presence of anti-CMV IgG and IgM may represent primary or secondary infection. CMV IgG avidity testing is becoming quite useful in these cases. I think this is quite important, Dr. Smith, because when a person has an acute primary CMV infection, low avidity anti-CMV IgG is produced. After two to four months, more mature high avidity anti-CMV IgG is produced. A high avidity test suggests infection occurred more than six months ago. Therefore, a pregnant patient less than 20 weeks gestation with high avidity is at less risk for primary infection during that gestation. So low avidity suggests a recent primary infection. Prenatal testing of the fetus should be offered when CMV infection is suspected. For highest yield, an amniocentesis should be performed after 21 weeks gestation and at least six weeks after maternal infection. The amniotic fluid should be sent for PCR testing to detect CMV DNA, and that's what we will do as maternal fetal medicine subspecialists when we see your uh, your uh, patient. I think it's also important that a normal evaluate a normal ultrasound evaluation does not rule out the risk for symptoms of birth or neurodevelopmental uh, abnormalities. Uh, the mainstay of treatment for maternal infection is supportive care. At the present, no effective treatment for prevention or reduction of the sequelae from congenital CMV infection is, uh, is, uh, has been developed. Recent studies suggest that CMV IVIG may reduce the risk of congenital infection and disease when given to pregnant women experiencing primary CMV. However, these results have not yet been confirmed from other studies. Great. Um, now, I, I heard you say we, we shouldn't test every pregnant woman for antibodies. Um, does that hold true for HSV and parvo as well? Absolutely. I, I think that uh, when you when you look at some of the studies regarding uh, just cost analysis, because most of these moms who are who who have been ex ex 
exposed by adult, uh, their adult uh, life. Uh, by the time you test these moms, more than 50% of them will have been exposed and, and have immunity. So it really is not cost effective at this point. And that's important for our residents to understand because you do see people out in practice in the community who are doing HSV, uh, IgG, and IgM on every patient or CMV. Um, and some patients will ask for these tests, like I said. Um, but knowing what ACOG recommends is really important um, as learners. So, um, okay, Marvin, how do we counsel our patients? Stay inside, avoid people who don't vaccinate their kids. Is there anything that we should talk to them about infections and pregnancy? Yeah, I think it's important, like we said, education is the most important aspect of what we do. And if you just know some of the numbers, I think we can we can really, really impart uh, a high level of knowledge and make our patients feel reassured. For example, when we talk about parvo, knowing when we see it the most, not necessarily, if you know that there is an active outbreak and you're pregnant and you know you're susceptible to the disease itself, you should probably avoid that. But attention to proper hygiene, like hand washing, avoiding uh, those individuals who have active disease is probably the safest bet. Okay. And I think we talked about this a little bit, but if I have a woman who calls suspecting she's been exposed to this or another infection, what's what should be my first line of action? The first line of action is you should bring her in to reassure her. And if there's any concern whatsoever, obtain serologies. Based on those serologies, you can refer or reassure. And then if necessary, we can evaluate your patient. Perfect. Well, this was really helpful. Um, I think it's a lot of great information for our learners, not only for pre-org exams, but lifelong for taking care of patients. Any other take-homes? Again, I think the most important thing, uh, excuse me, some of the most important points is just when you're counseling your patients with respect to HSV, realizing that a thorough exam is important, providing uh, numbers and documenting. And C-section is not 100%. Excellent. Great points. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Williams, for taking the time to be with us today. That's all we have for you on this uh, episode of our podcast. If you'd like a copy of the transcript from today's podcast or you have questions or comments about the subject, uh, please email me at katie-smith at ouhsc.edu. That's k-a-t-i-e-s-m-i-t-h at ouhsc.edu. Stay tuned for further podcasts from the Department of OBGYN here at the University of Oklahoma.